We're in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Great signs in the heavens. Great signs in the heavens. I didn't know if we had David's picture up there, but it's a great picture. If you go to the website, you'll see it. So if you would, stand for reading of God's word. Revelation 12, 1 through 6. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God on his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. This is the word of God. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word really is the soothing balm to our souls. And how we need that today. We need it in our world that is in chaos. but also in our lives, our individual lives. Holy Spirit, teach us things that we need to know today. We admit that this is, this is a section filled with symbolism. Help us to rightly divide your word and explain the symbolism accurately. Lord, we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, as you know, we're, the theme of Revelation is Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming in judgment. Jesus is coming to establish his 1,000-year millennial kingdom. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait until <laughs> the king comes. Now, last week we talked about the seventh trumpet that went off, and it was a kingdom takeover, that, that this information kind of reaches all the way through time in the middle of the tribulation period. And I, wanted, I have a picture here of, of the timeline of the two witnesses. So I don't know if you're going to be able to see this on the screen, but we... <laughs> Lee is hustling to get this up here. So anyway, uh, I want you to notice that this, this is showing us something that we've already seen before. The sealed judgments are in the first half of the tribulation. Most of the trumpet judgments are, but the trumpets ex extend out into the second half of the tribulation because the seventh trumpet opens the bold judgments. I want you to also notice in the middle of the tribulation that, uh, in the next slide please, that the two witnesses are in the middle of the tribulation. I believe that they witness from the beginning to the middle when they're killed and then caught up to heaven. I also want you to notice that the martyrs here, now you might not be able to see this, but the martyrs are, are the ones that are going to be killed after the 144,000 witness to them. They're saved, and most of them will cost them their lives to be saved. I believe most of these people are saved in the first half of the tribulation period. The first half of the tribulation period. Once we get into the bold judgments, it, there's going to be very, very few, if any, people that are saved. I cannot de say definitively that none will be saved, but it seems by that point that God has given all the witness that he can to the planet Earth, and people are either going to receive him or reject him based upon that witness. So this, the, the scripture that we have, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lordness Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's an 1115 that we said last week. This is a declarative statement. There's no room for error here. This is something that's absolutely going to happen. And one of the things that you want to be very acutely aware of is that all the kingdoms of the world, remember Nebuchadnezzar's statue, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, it was gold, silver, bronze, iron. These were precious and they looked wonderful and great to the world. But God viewed the kingdom of this world very differently. He viewed them as beasts. And remember Babylon, the lion, Persia, the bear, Greece, the leopard, and then this undefinable Rome that's just some monstrous beast. And remember, Rome is what exists today, the, the east and west legs of Rome. We have east and west division of nations on the earth to this day. God views these kingdoms as, as Antichrist or, or Satan's kingdoms and as beasts. Now, we know that Satan will enjoy a short time where he, he's, he's going to reign. And remember, he hates God, he hates Jesus Christ, and he hates you because you belong to God. So you must remember that. And he has a strategy to get you off base, and we went through this last week. 
One of the biggest strategies that, is, that he uses is offense. People becoming offended. And remember, that's the bait and the trap. You stick your head in the trap, you get offended, and you, and you respond to that, and boom, you are caught in the trap. And there was a sequence of events that happened. You went from offended to feeling betrayed. You've been lied to. Somebody did something to you. You don't like what they did. And then you progress to the stage of hate. That was the third phase that we talked about last week. It's not a vehement hate. It is a, it is a withdrawal of affection. And then the fourth step is deceived. You've been deceived. And in that phase, generally, you garner other people around you to hear your story, to give you support, to give you reasoning for you then to go to the fifth stage is to isolate. Pull away, be all by yourself, and that is right where Satan wants you. Isolated, out of the war, out of action, and useless. Don't fall for his schemes, for his tactics. Remember, he's given you methods He's given you ways, God has given us ways to overcome his tactics. One of them was the armor of God, and we spoke about that many times in the past, but last week we also added the grace of God, that God has graced us. So it is so important that we grace one another. And what does that mean to me? We have thick skin, soft hearts. Thick skin, soft hearts. That is an indicator. When you start to see that in your being and other people, that is an indicator that you are maturing and becoming conformed to the likeness of Christ. Then we, then we saw that when Jesus comes back, the earth dwellers will rebel against him. They have been deluded by Satan. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11, they have bought into the great delusion. Now, why did they buy into the great delusion? There's a simple reason. Because they did not receive the love of the truth. They then ignored all of the witnesses that God has given. The two witnesses, the 144,000, the three angels that are going around saying they have the gospel. They say Babylon has fallen. They are telling the people, don't take the mark of the beast, whatever you do. That witness is right in everybody's face, and people reject it. And then they fight against Jesus coming back. And then we talked about this that every person that is born into this world will be judged. Those who are born again of the Spirit will be judged at the Bema Seat judgment. That is where we receive rewards or loss of rewards based on what we've done for Christ after salvation, how we've used the spiritual gifts that God has given us. And then the lost people will appear at the great white throne judgment. Remember, the books will be opened, their lives will be examined, and their books, they'll open the book of life. Their, their names will not be found in the book of life. And at worst of worst of worst tragedies, they'll be thrown in the lake of fire, separated from God forever, torment forever, something that need not have been. It is tra absolutely tragic. So think about this. In our text today, we are dealing with symbolism. Symbolism that is the most extreme in all of Scripture. We're in a symbolic book in the book of Revelation. But the symbolism in this chapter is the greatest of all the symbolism in the book of Revelation. And we're going to have to deal with these symbols. Now, we have to re remember that the book of Revelation has no direct quotes from the Old Testament. But we must know the Old Testament in order to understand what this symbolism is. Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Mark Hitchcock have stated that there's about 550 references to the Old Testament, no direct quotes, so we must know what the Old Testament says. Arnold Fruchtenbaum also goes on to say, be careful in interpreting the symbols. And he says there's two extremes. One extreme is this that the book cannot be understood, nobody can understand these symbols, and it's just a battle between evil and good, and you can just leave it at that, and that would be a false view. Another view on the other extreme end of this is that everything that is happening, everything that is happening in the world, everything that is going on, he calls this unchecked speculation and sensationalism, guesswork. He calls it tabloid prophecy, where everything is Ezekiel 38 and 39, Everything is Psalm 83, and these wars are coming, and that's a picture, and everybody's lined up. Well, I believe they are lined up, but everything that we see, in, see happening in the papers does not mean it's 
something that is germane to the book of Revelation or the second coming. So what are we to do? We must be discerning, discerning in what we're hearing, discerning in what we watch on TV and are, are bringing into our minds. So, again, all the symbols of the book of Revelation are explained elsewhere. You don't have to guess at what they are, either in the same chapter or the same book or in the Old Testament. Now, the symbols, to understand the symbols, in chapter 7, there are about seven symbols that you're going to have to know. We're going to go through a few of them today, but I'm going to give you what I think these symbols represent right out of the chute. The woman represents Israel. We'll be talking about the woman momentarily. The dragon represents Satan. The man-child represents Jesus Messiah. Michael and his angels are, are the protectors of the throne of God. And Michael specifically is the archangel in charge of protecting Israel. So he has a huge job. But guess what? You also have angels that have been designated to enter into your life maybe to give you protection. Then we have the beast that comes out of the sea, the, the world dictator. We have Israel, the remnant seed of the woman. And then we have the beast of the earth, the false prophet and the religious leader of the world. Now our scene opens in verse 1. Remember, a lot of symbolism. The scene opens in verse 1 with the following. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. And I will bet you if you've done a cursory read through the book of Revelation, you get to that and go, what in the world does that mean? And you could just join the club. So first of all, what is a sign? A sign is this. It's a symbol pointing to something else. A great sign appeared in heaven. Now, this great sign is referring to the, to the woman who's going to birth Messiah. And Jesus, Messiah, is the great sign. No one else is great but our God. So the first sign is this, a woman who births Messiah. And again, only Messiah is great. Now, let me go through the symbolism again that we'll be going through today. The questions that we have to answer about the symbolism. Again, who is the woman? I have already told you that. It's Israel. But then who is the sun? Who is the moon? Who are the 12 stars? Who is the fiery dragon? We will allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Now, a side note, a side note on this. When you're thinking about who is the woman, replacement theologians believe that the woman is the church. Now, what is replacement theology? It is a theology that says this, the church has replaced Israel in God's plan to redeem the world, that Israel is no longer part of God's plan. That the, since they have re rejected Messiah, God has rejected them. They are no longer part of God's plan to redeem the world. That would be false theology. False, that's a false viewpoint in my opinion. Why do I say that? Well, we've done the study in Daniel. And we looked at Daniel chapter 9, 24, and we saw the 70 weeks prophecy. And we saw that that the 70 weeks are decreed for your people, your, your people, your nation, and the city of Jerusalem. Those 70 weeks were 70 week years. 70 week years. 490 years have been given to the nation of Israel. 483 years pass and then Messiah comes. Now, we have an overhead here. Oh, good, it's there. So we have the overhead. So I want you to realize there are 483 years. Now, this is very significant. From the going forth of the decree to restore and rebuild the wall in Jerusalem till Messiah Nagid comes, Messiah the King. Remember, Jesus accepted his kingship when he came in on Palm Sunday and, and he was crowned king and he accepted his kingship. He refused it several times before that. That would be a 483-year period of time. 69 weak years. Sir Robert Anderson, in his work, calculated this down to the day, 173,880 days from the going forth of the command in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, until Messiah would accept his kingship in Luke 19, there would be 173,880 days. Messiah would be cut off and killed 
and that the time for Israel would be on pause. The church age is the 2,000 plus years that we are in today. That will end with the rapture of the church. There will be a coming prince, which is the Antichrist, who will reign during this period of time. He will start out slowly during the first half of the week or the first three and a half years. He will then set up the abomination of desolation, insist to be worshipped as God, and he will then cease all worship in the temple. Everything will be directed at him. And then he will reign with fierceness for the rest of this time, trying to kill every Jew he possibly can through that last three and a half years. And any believer, any believer in Messiah for that last three and a half years. So, Thomas Ice says this about replacement theology. He said, It is the view that the church is the new or the true Israel that has permanently replaced or superseded Israel as the people of God. Again, this is false. Now, how can I make that statement so boldly when so much of the church are replacement theologians? They believe in replacement theology, that God is now just dealing with the church and has replaced Israel. How can I say that? Well, it has to do with the covenants. God's covenant with Israel is unconditional. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, 15, 1 through 21, and 17, 1 through 21. I'll read you 12, 1 through 3, something you're very familiar with. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house. Now remember Abraham, that was after his name was changed, Abraham, was a moon god worshiper. All of the world was worshiping false gods. God took one man, called him, and had him be his representative. All the other nations, all the other people had gone away from the true God. So he's going to use Abraham to build a nation of people, Israel, who are responsible for disseminating to the rest of the world who the true God is. So, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And God says this, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And that, folks, is a real, real warning. A real warning. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because Messiah would come through the lineage of Abraham. Jeremiah, last week we shared in Jeremiah 31, 35 through 36, talking about how Israel would be sustained and how God would continue to have them as a people. And it, just a short version, he said, if the sun, the moon, and the stars persisted, then the love that God had for Israel would, would still persist. He says they would not cease from being a nation before him unless the sun, the moon, and the stars stopped existing. Now that tells you that the nation of Israel is still important to God and his plan. Now, with the symbolism, allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 10, is the section of Scripture that we're going to be in. But for time, I'm going to focus on verses 9 and 10. Now, the background to this is that Joseph is 17 years old. He's the, he's the second to the youngest, Benjamin being the youngest, and then Joseph, both of them born to Rachel. Joseph has favor with his father, Jacob. Joseph is given a coat of many colors, stimulating jealousy within the family with the other brothers who are older than him, higher in the pecking order than him, but yet he has the favor of his dad. And then Joseph has a dream and in that dream, all these brothers are to bow down to him. He has a second dream in verses 9 through 10. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. And it, well, you still don't know the answer to who those are until you read the following. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father, Jacob, rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother, I, and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Now, from this scripture, we can easily deduce who these characters are. 
Again, the woman is the nation of Israel. More proof coming in a few seconds. The sun is Jacob, Joseph's father. The moon, I believe, is Rachel, but there are some expositors that say it's Leah because at the point that he's talking here, Rachel has already died. But Joseph's mother was Rachel, and I think he's referring to Joseph's mother. So uh, that's that. So the moon is, is, is Rachel, and the 12 stars are the 12 tribes of Israel. So now we know the characters. Now the next question is, it's going to help us discern that Israel is the, is the woman, is who is in labor? Now, many view this differently, and we'll go through a couple of those in just a second. So in verse 2, who is in labor? Then being with child, the woman, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So it's the nation of Israel is being birthed. And remember, from the nation of Israel comes whom? Messiah. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. So, some people believe that this is referring to Mary. And there are people, are good expositors, that believe this. I don't think that they're correct on this because I think there's a lot of evidence that it's not Mary. Some say it's the church. But the problem with that is the church did not birth Israel. Messiah, or did not birth Messiah. Messiah birthed the church. So they have it twisted. Now, some say the woman is Israel the people group that birthed the Messiah. And that's what I think is true. Romans chapter 9, 5 says this. Paul said that Messiah would come from, the, from Israel, Romans 9, 5. And then Isaiah prophesied that Israel would have labor pain and bring forth a male child in Isaiah 66, 7, and 8. But the real cruncher is this one. It's Revelation 12, 13. And it says this, Antichrist persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Now, Antichrist is chasing the nation of Israel in 1213. He wants to kill every Jewish person. This isn't referring to Mary. That is not referring to Mary. It is not referring to the church. I believe the church is already in heaven. This is referring to the nation of Israel. Now, we've seen a little bit of the symbolism. Now, there's going to be another sign. Another sign. It's going to be the dragon in verses 3 through 5. Now, this one's a little bit easier to discern because it's going to tell us right very soon. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, evil. Isn't it just, just reek with evil? Having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And this is another one of those things you're going, what in the world is that? Hold on. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. That sounds like it could have been Mary, doesn't it? To devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. It's when Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, watch this. John simply says, another sign. Now remember, great is reserved for only for Messiah. Now you have great evil here with the devil. It says a great red fiery, fiery red dragon. He's greatly evil, but only great in a good sense is applied to Jesus Messiah. So who is the fiery red dragon in verse 3? Well, verse 9 tells us it is Satan himself. So the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So there's no question who the dragon is. Now, what about the seven heads and the ten horns? That gets to be a little tough. If you haven't studied the Old Testament, if you haven't gone through the Daniel study, you're going to be all confused on this. But let me help you clarify. So the seven heads, I believe, refer to Satan ruling the seven kingdoms of the world. Now, those seven kingdoms are this. Remember, Bab uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue had four kingdoms, a fifth being the toes. But there are two other ones. It actually starts with Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, ten-nation confederation, seven in all, all kingdoms of this world, all kingdoms under the control of Satan, all of them evil to some extent. To a great extent. So those, the kingdoms, the seven kingdoms, I believe, are referring to the, the, the kingdoms that have pre predominated on earth 
and dominated over Israel. Now, how about the ten horns? The ten horns are ten ruling kings who have charge on the earth. How do we know that? Because we've done our study in Daniel. There's a couple places in Daniel where it mentions it. Daniel chapter 7, 7 through 8, and Daniel 7, 19 and 20. I will just give you the 7, 7 through 8 verses. After I saw this in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Now, who's the fourth beast? Rome. Rome with an east and west division. Dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. And then it makes this unusual statement. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Ten ruling kingdoms. All the other kingdoms had one ruler. One ruler in Egypt, one Babylon, Persia, Greece. Even in imperial Rome, there was Caesar. But oh, in those ten, ten toes, there are ten kings that are going to be ruling over those, those, those areas. Now watch what it says. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them. It would be an eleventh horn. Who would that be? That's the Antichrist. He, and that's why we think he ascends slowly. Those ten nations are already in place when the Antichrist ascends into power. He ascends slowly. Once he gets into, into his power position, watch what he does. And there in his horn, he does this. And there in this horn where the, oh, excuse me, I'm in the wrong spot. I missed it. Coming up, we're, we're, we're among coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. So three of these nation or distributions of national areas will rebel against the Antichrist. You're not going to rule over us, and he will subdue them very quickly, and they will submit to his rule. And watch what it says about this one that does this. And there in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Doesn't that sound just like Satan? Just like Satan. Pompous words. So the three kings will resist. Antichrist is going to come to power on earth. And think about this. In next week, we're going to be talking about uh, Revelation chapter 12, 7 and on. And it talks about a war in heaven. I think Satan instigates a war in heaven. There'll be more on that next week. So concomitantly with the war on earth, with Satan assuming power and taking over planet earth, in heaven, he's going to try to take over heaven. So Antichrist on earth, excuse me, Satan in heaven, and he's going to be thrown out by Michael and his angels and thrown to the earth and chase the remnant. More on that in just a second. Now in verse 4, it alludes to to Satan's original fall, but I don't think it's talking about his original fall. Watch this. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Who is throwing these stars to the earth? Satan is, not God. That happens next week when Satan is permanently booted out of heaven. We know there was an original fall of Satan. We know that he lost his privilege in heaven. We know that he went from Lucifer, the anointed one, the the anointed cherub, Uh, the light bearer, to Satan, the adversary, the devil, the accuser of the brethren. He went from a high exalted position. He was thrown out. His second abode is what he exists in now. That is the atmospheric heavens. He has responsibility to give an account of himself from time to time to God. We see that in Job chapter 1. But he doesn't have the position he had in heaven. He took a third of the angels with him. That gives us some information here about how many went in Satan with his fall. But I don't think it's actually pointing at Satan's fall here. Watch this. Satan mobilizes all of his fallen angel cohorts in an attempt to kill the Messiah. And he fails. He fails. Now watch. Satan's target from the beginning has been to prevent the birth of Messiah. And he has all hands on deck to do this. Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Satan will do everything he can to thwart that birth, but he can't. Satan wants to devour her child as soon as it is born, and he uses Rome and he uses Herod in his plan. 
Remember Genesis 3.15 is the proto-evangelium. It is the first gospel that Satan will bruise Messiah's heel, but Messiah will crush Satan's head with a death blow. And since then, he's been trying to thwart this one from coming that would cause his ultimate demise, Jesus Messiah. John Wolvard in his commentary gives us a little bit more insight into this. He says this, quote, The illusion here is unmistakable to the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ in Bethlehem and the attempts of Herod to destroy the baby Jesus. Herod was an Edomite. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but he was a descendant of Esau, an enemy of Israel. So Herod hates the Jews, but he's in charge of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? Whether motivated by family hatred of the Jews or by political consideration, because he did not want a competing king, Herod did attempt to kill the Messiah. And we see that in Matthew 2, 16 through 18. Now, can you imagine the frustration that Satan must have when he is checked at every point that he tries to do something? Every time he tries to do something, God checks him. Just think of the following. Satan could not prevent the birth of Messiah. No matter what he did, he couldn't do that. Satan could not tempt Jesus to, to fall for the temptation, to circumvent the cross and the three temptations of the wilderness. Satan could not stop Jesus from his mission for dying for the sins of the world. That's why Jesus came. He came to die. He could not stop Jesus from rising from the dead. He had victory over death. He cannot stop Jesus from returning for his church at the rapture. We will be out of here someday. Hip, hip, hooray. And Satan will not stop Jesus from returning to earth to establish his thousand-year millennial kingdom. He'll do everything he can to stop it, but he won't be able to. And he will try to kill every Jew, but he will not be successful. And the Jews will plead for him to return. And the Jews will confess their national sin of rejecting Messiah. And he will thwart Satan's moves every step of the way. Now look, Satan is powerful, but he's a miserable failure in his attempts to outwit God. And you'd think he would learn. That's why sin makes you delusional, folks. Sin makes you crazy. Yes. Now think about this. Satan, uh, would you agree with this? Satan is a deceiver extraordinaire. Would you agree with that? And you two people here just nod your heads and say yes. Are you people? Yes, yes, he's a, he's a deceiver. Do not fall for his schemes. He is in the business of deception. And how do we not fall for his schemes? Know your enemy's tactics. Know his methodia. His schemes in Ephesians 6.11. Now, what are we to do in Ephesians 6.12? All of you know this. We put on the whole armor of God. We arm it up. All of it must be on. You don't set any parts aside. Now, think about this. What part do you think would be the most difficult to have on? Think about where this is. They're in an arid environment. It's hot. It's sticky. And they have the helmet on. And keep your helmet on all day. We can't keep our masks on. We can't keep our mask on without touching it and grabbing it and pulling it down, that sort of thing. We can't do anything. Imagine your helmet having to keep it on in that heat and it's boiling on you. And the temptation is to take that helmet off and get a little rest. The helmet of salvation does this, folks. It protects your mind. It protects your soul. It protects your thinking. And remember this, the battle is for control of the mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is your go-to verse for this. 2 Corinthians 10.3 says this, and this is like essential knowing for the Christian. For though we walk in the flesh, this is our bodies, we're walking, in, we're walking about in these bodies. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to fleshly ways, the ways that the world goes about it. No, we don't. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, fortresses, well-established patterns of life. We pull them down. Casting down arguments. We've been through this word before. You know it. It's legismos. What does that mean? It's thoughts, arguments, 
reasonings, false teachings, false philosophies. We tear them down, casting down arguments, and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to what? To the obedience of Christ. It's a mind war. It is a mind battle. He who controls the mind controls the person. You don't think Satan doesn't know this? Look at the indoctrination that has gone on all through our world. Look at Daniel. They tried to indoctrinate him and all his Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the Babylonian world system. Satan is an expert at deception, expert at trying to control minds. And what's our, what do we do? How do we battle this? Well, we're told, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then we're to make our home in Christ. Remember, dwell in Christ. It's a mind war. Do not fall for his schemes. Do not fall for his schemes. Now, in verse 5, we read the following. She bore a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. No matter how Satan tries to conspire to stop God, he can't. The child is caught up to the throne. This is Jesus' ascension. Harpazo is the word caught up. You've heard this word before. Where you've heard it is is 1 Thessalonians 4.17. The dead in Christ shall be caught up. Harpazo. That's the rapture of the church. Caught up. Remember this. Jesus accomplished phase one of his mission. What was that? He came to do the Father's will. John 6.38. What was the Father's will? To die for the sins of the world. That's why Jesus came. To die be buried, and raise again victorious from the grave. But also the Father's will was this, that God would have a people for himself, a few out of the world that would believe the message of Messiah, receive the gift of salvation, and be part of the family of God. And that is what each one of you have done. You are the unusual. You are the strangers. You are the aliens and strangers that it talks about in Hebrews. You feel out of place here because this world is not your home. We have a great promise. We'll live with God forever. A great future. A great hope. Phase one was accomplished. And I can guarantee you that phase two will be accomplished. He will accomplish his mission to return, judge evil, and Jesus will reign a thousand years on this earth. And guess what? You will reign with him. And your reigning will depend upon... What you've done for him here. <laughs> so, you're, so how you use your gifts here will determine how you'll reign in the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Isn't that great? Jesus is coming back, folks. Now, verse 6 is a little unusual. It kind of goes into next week. But I'm going to cover it here. It's, it's called, I call it the future escape. The future escape. It kind of goes forward in time. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Now, again, who is the woman? Israel. Mary didn't flee into the wilderness. The church didn't flee into the wilderness. The woman is is fleeing into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. This only matches the nation of Israel. So, test question. Who is the woman? The woman is Israel. You got an A. Yes, you did. Okay, good. So we leap forward in time when Satan is cast to the earth. Remember, there's going to be war in heaven. That's 12-7 next week. And what will Satan do when he's cast to the earth? 12-13, he will persecute the woman who gave birth to the male child. Now, what does the woman do? What does she do? She flees into the wilderness. That's 12-14, a little preview again of next week. She cannot fight against the Satan-possessed Antichrist. She's not powerful enough, but God provides a way for her to escape, just like he always does with us. He always provides us a way to escape. Now, why did did she run, and how did she know where to run? Two things you need to know. Why did she run? Well, the abomination of desolation. Jesus warned about it in Matthew 24. Daniel 9.27 warned about it. God held them responsible for knowing the signs of the times. He holds us today responsible for knowing the signs of the times. 
And how did they know where to run? It isn't like when you're lost in the woods and you just run around in circles. They had a specific destination. Now listen to this. There is one place on earth where Antichrist cannot touch. And God has secured that for himself, for his people. And that place is revealed in Daniel 11.41. Many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Many believe this place of escape is Basra in Hebrew, or some say Petra. Micah 2.12 says this, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like a sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. Gee, God's going to rescue them. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. Now on the screen we have the map. When, they, when the Jews see in Jerusalem the abomination of desolation, they will know because of the prophet Daniel and because of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, escape. And your escape place is Basra. And anti, okay, Antichrist will chase them. <laughs> Antichrist right there. Yeah. <laughs> Antichrist will chase them. And we're going to see next week that the earth will open up and swell and swallow up the, the armies that are chasing, chasing the woman. So, we know that's the pl place of escape. How long will she be protected? Well, the text tells us. 1,260 days. Last three and a half years. The abomination of desolation in the middle. Time starts. 1,260 days from there. Boom. Messiah is coming back. And what will God do with his people? He'll protect them and he'll provide for them. All a miracle of God. He will save their lives. But I want to say, suggest something to you. God will provide and protect you on your pilgrimage here. On your journey through earth here. He will do that until the appointed time of your departure. So you can be fearless. You can be fearless Christians. You can rest in the sovereignty of God. Rest in it. God will carry out his purposes for your life. Enjoy peace in the chaos of life, knowing this fact. And I want to suggest something to you. Please hear this. If you haven't heard anything up to this point, we're living in tumultuous times. It's uneasy. Most of our spirits are disturbed, whether it's from elections, whether it's what's going on in our world, whether it's going on in your family, whatever it's going with your health, whatever it is, most of us have a point of disruption, a disturbance in our being. You can choose peace. It's up to you. The peace of God is actually a sentinel or a guard over your mind if you choose it to be. How do I know that? Philippians 4, 7. The peace of God which passes all understandings will guard your heart and mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, Jesus said this in John 16, These words I have spoken to you. In me, you will have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, how do I live in peace? How do I have this guard, this sentinel over my mind? How do I, in, how do I actually live out what Jesus said, that, that we can have peace in this world, even though there's tribulation? How do I do that? Well, Philippians 4.8 gives us the answer. And remember, it's all a matter of the mind. What your mind is focusing on. Whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. When you start to go into worry land, when you start to go into projection land of what might happen down the road, and it causes consternation and anxiety, no, we take captive that thought, make it obedient to Christ, and go through that eight-point grid. If it's not true, noble, right, I am not going to concentrate on that. And you can have peace. Closing. Great signs in the heaven. Now, God has given us many signs. I mean, we know that we're living in the end times. We know that the nation of Israel being established May 14, 1948, was a seminal moment on, on planet Earth. When a nation was, was established in a day, as it says in the, in the prophets. No nation has ever done that been dispersed throughout the world and in 
made, and then was taken back to their land and occupied their land and became sovereign rulers over that land and immediately was attacked. But no nation has done that. Now, think about this. Ignorance of prophecy did not save Jerusalem in 70 AD. Ignorance of what's going on around us as we see our world changing will not save us in 2020. Because pretending that it's not happening, I don't want to hear this, I'm, it won't help you. You must know the signs of the times and what's going on and has it, how it relates to your world today. Jesus expects us to know. Do not ignore the signs. Now, why the signs? Why does God go through all of this, this extreme, these extreme measures to show us these signs? I think that's a legitimate question. I think it's this. Not to make us fearful when these things start to happen. We know what's going to happen. We know a one-world government is coming. We know a one-world monetary system is coming. We know that a one-world religious system is coming. We know that the world is for open borders, but God is not. We don't have to become disturbed because we know it's going in that direction. It's just before Jesus comes back. Get excited. Get excited. Folks, Jesus really is coming back. He really is coming back. So don't buy into Satan's lies. Don't buy into the world indoctrination. There's an all-out effort today to indoctrinate you to a worldview that is anti-Bible and anti-God, and you're looked at as ignorant and intolerant because you're not buying into it. Don't buy into it, no matter what. And again, like I mentioned earlier, be a Daniel. Remember, Daniel didn't partake of the king's delicacies because he didn't want to be indoctrinated into a Babylonian world system. And neither should we. Folks, you are the remnant. You are the remnant. There's a future remnant of the Jews who will flee to their prepared place. An antichrist will not be able to touch them. And you today are the remnant. And I would urge you to flee to your prepared place. Well, where's that? Where's our prepared place? Close to your shepherd. Stay right on your shepherd's heels. Listen for the calm, reassuring voice of your shepherd. You must know that this is one of my favorite verses. Jesus said this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, isn't this just a wonderful picture of this? Look, at this is us. This is us. I mean, this is me right here. I'm trying to edge my way up to the as much as I can, close to the shepherd. But this is, we're bunched together. We're following our shepherd. I mean, this is a picture of us as sheep. Can you imagine heaven? We're going to be following our shepherd through heaven for who knows how long. I mean, that's, going to, that's an amazing picture of comfort. Amazing picture of comfort. Remember what Jesus said, folks. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And also remember, Jesus is gentle. And humble in heart. Remember, take my yoke upon me. For I, am, I, I am gentle and humble in heart, and you find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Oh, when we're yoked to Jesus, it is so nice. I don't have to think, I just go where he goes. He leads me to the right, I go to the right. He leads me to the left, I, he stops, I stop. I'm in step with the shepherd. That is what dwelling in Christ is. Keeping in step with the shepherd. And remember this, God has given you a gift during your pilgrimage here. It's called the Comforter in John 14, 16. Watch what Jesus said. He is so gentle with his disciples. And he's so gentle with us. He knew that they were in consternation because they were leaving. he was leaving. He knew that they were disturbed. And he says these words, I will pray the Father. And he will give you another helper. Remember that another, we've been to this many times, is Allos. One of the same kind as me. The Holy Spirit will be just like Jesus. Your comforter, your parakletos, right alongside you, that he may abide with you forever. The Holy Spirit is with you through all the stuff of life. So while we wait, occupy and keep looking up. Remember, we went through that Occupy last week. Occupy. Be about the master's business. And, the, and then this, please. If you're an occupier, if you are 
someone that is dwelling with Christ. If you are filled with the Spirit, what kind of face should you have? It should be like the big old smiley face. Not a, oh no, the election went wrong. Or no, the election went right. We should be, <laughs> it depends on your perspective. Look at Luke 21, 28 says this. Now when these things begin to happen, what things? The signs. He says this, look up. Look up, Christian. Look up. Lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. What, if you're looking up, this is expectation. This isn't moping. This isn't chin on the ground. This isn't gloom and despair. Look up, for your redemption draws near. The great sign is almost here, folks. Messiah. Messiah. Messiah is coming. And remember, listen. You hear it? You can almost hear the footsteps of Messiah. He's given us the signs. I can hear him. He's coming. He's coming. And you can breathe a sigh of relief. I don't have to worry about anything. I can put my trust in my Savior. I'm, going to be, I'm close to my shepherd. He will direct my steps. Folks, this is good news. Your king is coming. And he's coming for you. You are special to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for allowing us to study the inerrant, incredible, amazing word of God. Thank you that there's hope even in a future that is filled with such incredible, awful stuff. But we know that you're doing this awful stuff to bring out a people. So they, people get a picture of what hell is through all these trumpet judgments. and these, They're getting a picture of what this is like. Oh, Lord, I just pray so much that people will come out of the darkness, come into the light, become part of your family, believe and receive the gift of salvation. It is so simple. You paid the whole price. And all you require, you took all the beating, you took all the stuff on yourself, all the sins, all my sins, all of our sins. And all we have to do is say, yes, Jesus, I believe you did that for me. I commit myself to you. I will follow you. I receive the gift of salvation. Oh, if you haven't done that, I plead with you. Do that today. You will be so incredibly thankful in the future that you've done that. You were created for a purpose, folks. That purpose is not your best life now, but it's your best life then. Folks, the king is coming. We can have a great life now with the king, but it's going to be greater in the future. Thank you, Father, for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.